Welcome to the Soul Craft Your Life podcast. My name is Carmen Marshall, and I'm a life design and manifestation expert, a seven-figure entrepreneur, wellness educator, and a dance teacher. And I'm passionate about helping you create a magical and fulfilling life. Whether you want to discover your purpose, learn how to attract financial abundance, or create more health, balance, joy, and connection in your life, the Soul Craft Your Life podcast has got you covered. One part strategy and one part soul. Each week we explore both the practical and the spiritual with intriguing experts and fascinating human beings, all sharing their wisdom to help expand what we think is possible for our own lives. The goal? To help you create a life you love on your own terms that stems from your soul. Let's dive in and discover what this life has to offer each of us. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Soul Craft Your Life podcast. I'm so glad you're here. So I wanted to interview Steve Jones as one of my first guests on the podcast because of his incredibly unusual life path from bomb disposal specialist and counterterrorism expert to a Qigong teacher and spiritual mentor, which is quite the leap, wouldn't you say? So the backstory. Steve served in both the British Army and the Australian Defense Force for 24 years, specializing in bomb disposal and counterterrorism. Then after his military career, he owned a highly sought-after consultancy business, supporting various governments and agencies. But after sustaining multiple injuries from his very high-risk career, including breaking his back twice, Steve had to retire early. In incredible pain and actually unable to walk for quite a period of time, he went on a physical and spiritual journey over eight years. Steve is now healthy, vibrant, walking completely fine, and is also a gifted Qigong teacher, and he supports many in his community with wellness and mentoring. So in this episode, through Steve's wisdom and his lived experience over those eight years, we're going to talk about how to change your life and the world by moving from fear to love. Let's dive in together. Hi, Steve. I'm so happy to have you here. I have been wanting to share your story. You have such a fascinating story. But before we get started, can you let people know where you are so our listeners can really visualize whereabouts you are in the world? Carmen, I'd love to. Um, hello, and thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, some spend, spend some time with you today and, uh, and, and chat through a little of my story. Uh, so, yeah, I'm uh, living in Australia. Uh, I'm from the UK originally, quite, quite near London. Uh, and I was, uh, I was in the military for a long time. Uh, and then I worked as a consultant in counterterrorism. Uh, and then uh, since since that time, I retired early because of a, a, quite a number of injuries and challenges that I was going through. And uh, since then, I've been going on a, a very deep and uh, earnest spiritual journey, which has, has brought me to a place of a great deal of peace and, and joy. Beautiful. And whereabouts in Australia are, are you right now? A beautiful suburb called Sunshine Beach, although I must admit it's raining today, actually, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> often sunny. So It's usually sunny, but when it's rainy, we call it the, the rainy coast. <laughs> and and, and uh, the rain in Queensland can be biblical. It really does rain very hard sometimes. So. But, but a wonderful place to live. Oh, most beautiful place, I think. So why I wanted to have this conversation is the journey you have been on has just been incredible. So 
you know, 24 years with the British Army and the Australian um, forces as a bomb diffuser specialist and counterterrorism. And then all the things that you did, like the jumping out of airplanes and the parachuting, and then the damage that you sustained to your body through, I think it was 12 different incidences, and then the healing journey that you had to go on. And now, of course, being a Qigong teacher, an amazing Qigong teacher, and also a wellness and and really a, a spiritual mentor for so many people. But it's so interesting. Like, how did you get from this bomb specialist and counterterrorism specialist to a Qigong master? <laughs> There's like quite a story in there. So could you tell us how you started, like some of the pivotal moments, perhaps in your childhood and then pivotal moments throughout your journey? to where you've ended up today. And then we can talk about some of the deeper subjects um, that I think your history will really inform why you've came, come to believe what you believe. Carmen, that's a lovely way to lead into the story. Thank you. Um, yeah, in, in terms of pivotal moments, and it, and it is always good to perhaps reach back into childhood. So often some of those moments can be incredibly formative. Uh, for me, I, I choose three moments through life. And the first would have been when I was 12 years old. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I witnessed my father die. Uh, he died of a huge heart attack. And, and um, as I watched him uh, pass, it was as if he'd been hit by an invisible train. It was a very traumatic and painful experience for him. Uh, and obviously had a, a deep and profound effect on me uh, as a young boy. Um, it would have been easy perhaps to have been quite traumatized and uh, affected in difficult ways through life but as I as I look back on that moment um, it was uh, in a sense a, a simple childhood logic that uh, as my father died I realized in the months that followed that we all die it's a simple inevitability it's part of the cycle of life uh, it's kind of silly to resist or or fight with that inevitable thing and as I accepted that death is very much a part of life, I had a sense deep within myself that I had an opportunity to um, really deep dive into some great challenges and indeed take some risks with my life uh, and perhaps live in a more rich and um, uh, engaging way with life because of what had happened to me so uh, that really took me on the path to join the military and uh, to um, become a bomb disposal expert so I, I served in the British Army for about 24 years uh, and over that time um, and uh, one or two other occasions as well I probably had a total of about 12 near-death experiences and, and a number of those were work-related but some of them were other things so as a child I actually fell into a bog and, and nearly drowned so uh, and I've, I've been in about 22 traffic accidents as well so so the the moments where it felt like I'd managed to cheat the odds were, were a variety to be fair uh, and some of it was was inevitably it was work-related but um what, what I did find is that over the course of that journey and this was kind of number two in terms of key events, is that I, I really did lose all fear of dying. Mm. I, I guess in a nutshell, I made my peace with it uh, because I came close repeatedly and just accepted that at some point we all do die and that I, I was okay with that. And I'd, I'd live a full and varied life um, in, in the meantime. So, yeah, so num number two was really... Um, uh, 
uh, reaching a point where I was beyond the fear of dying. Mm. Um, uh, and in a sense, with, with that, I, I, I felt a loss of all sense of fear of any kind. Mm. Um, I think for many people, the sort of fears that we do experience, um, if you delve deep enough, much of it's connected to a fear of death. Yeah, it's so interesting. They they say that that whether we know it or not, that is our number one fear of dying. And of course, as we get older, it seems much closer. Like we never think of it when we're teens or twenties, thirties. Mm. But that underneath, that's such a driving factor: that fear of death. And it's so interesting because how you metabolized the death of your father ended up actually being a good thing in in the sense that you were probably willing to take more risks than normal. Was your mom like scared to, that you were going to like hurt yourself? And then in the army, were they like, oh my goodness, he like takes all these risks. Like how did people see you? Did they see you as this risk taker? Yes. And those are two beautiful insights because it's not my lens, it's somebody else's lens. So so they're great questions to ask. Um, My my mother was sort of quite pro-military because she grew up during World War Two. And uh, her father was was uh, actually a professional military man. He was in the army his his whole life, um, and she loved all the sort of stories. He'd come back with over a whiskey when he'd be chatting to her, and, and that type of thing. Uh, as a child, I was incredibly shy and very mm. gentle and thoughtful. So when I mentioned about joining the army, she she was completely perplexed. I think as a child, she was quite convinced that I was actually gay because uh, I just got such a gentle kind way about me. my shyness meant I, I didn't ever even speak to a girl let alone have, have uh, sort of friendships and things like that so I, I guess for my mother it was a fairly fairly reasonable deduction to make but um uh, and yeah so it was a shock to her that I joined and I was always very mindful of not saying too much about uh my work um especially if I was going deploying to high risk, high risk theatres where, um, you know, the bomb disposal stuff was a bit more intense. So, so mum wouldn't know sort of where I'd gone to. And I, I tried to sort of shield her to some degree from those things. Um, the, the other people in the military, uh, I think they, they found me rather uh, an entertaining curiosity because I was such a risk seeker. Uh, I bought the fastest production motorbike in the world, um, as well as doing the bomb disposal stuff. I ended up, uh, because I did it for so long, I specialised and supported special forces in in that role. So a lot of the additional things that we were doing, you know, um, using helicopters to uh, fast rope onto ships, uh, parachuting into the sea at night, that that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, as well as the bomb disposal stuff, there was a, a, a broader, uh, high-risk profile. But I, I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. You know, if there was something cheeky or dangerous, I was, I was there. And I, I can remember in my 20s and 30s loving the phrase, and it's, it's a cliche, but uh, loving the phrase, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Uh, and, and and I I lived that I really did for twenty years yeah. So number one, of course, the death of your father. Number two, what would you say is your your next defining moment that really created the trajectory of your life? Yeah, I I I encapsulate it with that statement of of actually losing all fear. Mm-hmm. And specifically, a fear of dying, and that that was a gradual process. You know, it was coming close to death repeatedly, 
taking risks as a matter of course for many years. Um, and, and eventually, I yeah, I just made peace with it. And because I, I lost that fear of dying, I think in, in a number of ways that allowed me to embrace life all the more. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can remember um, that uh, there, there was a beautiful drop-in. I went to a meditation course uh, after, after I'd retired, actually. And uh, amazing German chap who was, who was uh, facilitating the course. And during the dialogue and discussions uh, with him, I had a drop in where I realized that the fear of dying was very much uh, half of the story. And that the other half of being able to really embrace life is not having a fear of living. And that might sound a strange statement, but um, for me, I managed to encapsulate that by... Uh, saying to myself, okay, what are the top three things that you don't think you can do? What would be the worst um, things that you just would be awful at, at doing, the, the last things that you choose to do? So I, I deliberately sat down and worked out what the three were. Uh, and and, and as, as you know, number one on my list was uh, going to dance classes. <laughs> it amused many, I'm sure. So um, uh, um, for those listeners that don't know, Carmen is a, is a uh, dance teacher. And a, and a marvelous one too so we actually met at that very first dance class um uh, with my partner at the time being concerned that I'm, i might uh, have gone to the toilet and done a runner and not <laughs> um but that fear of living was actually um a, a much later drop in but but in a nutshell number two was overcoming fear and how it limits our lives uh, and realizing that it when you can find a place beyond fear, and I think all humans have the capacity to, to reach that point, uh, in a sense, I think there's an inevitability about it eventually, mm. that we can really embrace life in, in its fullest and uh, most bountiful way. Yeah. And it's such a, a beautiful, I mean, everything is yin and yang and the contrast, but I love that distinction of fear of death and then fear of living and the question, you know, what am I scared of? Like, what would be the worst thing to do? Yeah. That's and it. go out and do it. Because, of okay. course, as you do that, um, it opens doorways to a richer life. And, and the friendships that uh, that we've enjoyed since that moment have been really expanding and uh, provides great color and, and fun into life. You know, so it's a marvelous thing. So, yeah, num number one was seeing my father die. Number two was sort of loss of fear. And number three, again, wasn't an instantaneous thing. Um, after I uh, finished working, so 24 years military, seven years as a consultant in the counterterrorism field, my injuries gradually became more and more constraining to the point where I, I could no longer walk. And, and at that point, um, I really had to stop in every possible sense. Uh, and it really was... Um, a classic sort of dark night of the soul because I was in huge amount of pain for years, uh, very debilitated by my injuries. Uh, my um, family broke up. Uh, I was living in a caravan because that was all I could afford. So I didn't really have any money. Um, and I had no real physical mobility. Uh, I couldn't work. Uh, so the whole sense of identity mm. and role in life had completely shifted. And on a good day, um, I could brush my teeth and that was it. 
Yeah. And that was for a seven year healing period, correct? Like it was a month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't walk for a shorter period than that, but, uh, but, but yeah, it was in total, it was about a seven year journey trying to overcome those, those challenges. Um, and that took me on a incredible path. Mm. Uh, I, I look back on that chapter and occasionally I, I share this with people and it's quite a confronting statement to make, but but one I felt deeply about at the time. In hindsight, it would have been a kindness to commit suicide uh, because of the level of suffering and pain and just incredible duress that I went through for years. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just, I did think about it every now and then, but it's just not really in my makeup. I've always had the philosophy that if a day is absolutely awful, tomorrow's got to be a bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a couple of years, <laughs> that didn't seem to come true, I have to say. Um, but as I, as I navigated that journey, I used about a dozen different really healthy modalities. So some of it was improving my diet. Um, so making sure that the foods that I was eating weren't causing any inflammatory response. Uh, some of it was meditation. Some of it was Pilates. After a few years, I could begin to do yin yoga. Mm. Um, I found hydrotherapy really helpful. So I went through um, a, a journey of different healing modalities to try and support uh, my repair. Um, but what I found along that path was that as I went deeper into meditation and spiritual reflection, and I, I tried to study all of the great masters and the ancient uh, traditions, uh, any source of um, deep spirituality that could provide me with some wisdom and peace, I, I, I deep dived into that for seven years. Mm. And-, and I think the how you really came out of it is so profound. But for our listeners, can you share the, I, I, you've told me, but I think it's so important to realize like what was going on in your spine, like how debilitating that was. And I think that's, that which, that also shows what a miracle it was really to be, you know, healed through what you did. But can you, can you describe what happened? Cause it's, it's just crazy the injuries that you sustain, not only to your spine, but to your tendons and everything. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, as I mentioned, there was about a dozen different sort of injuries and conditions, but, uh, but the, the prime injury was my spine. So I, I, uh, I broke my spine a couple of times, uh, snapped off two of the facet joints in two different work injuries. So one was parachuting into the sea with lots of heavy equipment. And a crosswind had flicked me sideways really quite hard. So that pinged a facet joint off. And then I bust uh, the facet joint at the same level, uh, coming out of a helicopter onto a fast rope down towards the bridge of a ship. So it was a sort of 90-foot fast rope descent. And again, it was really heavy equipment because all the bomb disposal kit that Mm. I was carrying. So once both facet joints broken, that that vertebrae was kind of free-floating. Uh, so spondylolisthesis, they call it. So, so the vertebrae moves forwards and impinges on the spine. So that that caused me a great deal of pain. Um, mm-hmm. I then had a fusion operation to to bolt those um, those two vertebrae together. And subsequent to the operation, it felt as if the spacer uh, between the two vertebrae wasn't actually large enough. So, so I couldn't sit for more than about ten minutes a day, wow. and I, I was in incredible pain. I couldn't stand or walk for more than about twenty minutes. 
Um, and then I, I tried to continue doing physical training. And I, I know this sounds sounds absolutely insane. And it is when I look back on it. But my whole life, I'd done about five hours fitness a day. And running was one of my greatest forms of stress and pressure release from the intensity of the, the sort of work and, and life that I was living. So I started running on the beach to try and minimize the sort of effect on my spine and the in the operation site. And I, over over some period of time, the, the pain became absolutely off the scale. So they did some more scans, etc., to have a look at my spine and what was happening. And basically, I'd made cavity holes around the bolts where they put the metalwork wow. into the spine. So the neurosurgeon at the time said, look, we, we'd quite like to go back in, operate, put a more substantial frame around the uh, fusion site and use larger bolts into your spine. And I'd been in so much pain for so long, I just really wasn't in a rush to do that. And, and just to explain, I, I know running on, on, on those sorts of injuries sounds absolutely ridiculous. But, uh, but in truth, what, what I was doing, it was a pressure release for the PTSD that I'd experienced over the years and the psychiatrist that that um, uh, that was treating me at the time described it as complex and compound PTSD because I, I navigated that condition for decades mm. uh, continually pouring more on top which uh, again wasn't perhaps the the most sensible thing to do um, but the the physical activity was a pressure release for the PTSD yeah. But once I'd reached a point where the pain and the conditions were such that I just physically really couldn't do anything at all, I was left with two choices, either suicide or go inwards. So I went inwards on a spiritual journey and uh, meditation became one of my best friends in, in a great many ways. I, I love the quotes that the greatest gift you can give yourself is meditation. Uh, so I, I meditate a few hours every day uh, and have done for uh, about uh, seven, eight years now. Um, so, so that was amazing. And as I went on the spiritual journey, I realized that so many of the gurus and the teachers and the masters really drove down to one central issue. And it was about living with love. And... Sorry, I'm a bit, uh, bit, bit emotional about that because it's such a, such a deep, deep core issue for me. And as I went on that journey for years, I, I every single day I tried to live with more love. So I'd release the need to control or judge or be angry, um, be unkind. I'd let go of all of those types of energies more and more each day. And it was a return to love. And, and I personally believe that deep within us, there's a, a light, your, your soul, if you will. But there is a, a center to our being that is pure love, mm. uh, that we are fundamentally made that way. It's where we come from. It's where we go back to. Um, and that pure love uh, for me is part of the fabric of the cosmos. And when we can return back to that state, then our capacity to heal, to grow, to learn has no limit. So incredible. And what did that look like for you in that journey? Like 
what was the first, I, I imagine meditation opened that up, but the first glimpse of, okay, love is the answer. And what did that journey look like for you? Like the unraveling and the untangling and the just letting go. Mm, yeah, many things. Um, uh, I remember as I, I sort of study lots of books and philosophies and, uh, you know, there, there's a couple of people uh, that I, I really found um, great guidance from. Uh, I, I read a lot of Eckhart Tolle's work and Ram Dass as well, actually. And, and for me, both, both of those um, those gurus were, were uh, tremendous guidance. But as I went on that journey, I would practice things daily that would change in flavor so I can remember deciding to let go of judgment so there I was laying in my hammock in the caravan park reading my spiritual books and I'd go okay let's spend a minute without judging a single thing not looking at that dog going that dog's a bit ugly um or looking <laughs> at that tree and going cool that you know that looks a right state that needs pruning um not struggling with the way people behave or what they say and realizing that a minute let alone 10 minutes of no judgment whatsoever really was challenging mm. and and those those i i'd find just um, individual practices to work on one at a time and releasing judgment. And I'm not perfect at it. You know, I, I have my moments where, um, you know, so, something will trigger me slightly. Uh, although I confess when that happens now, I zoom inwards uh, mm. and I immediately race inwards to find what that trigger is, where it's from, what's the flavors and sit with the lesson and be grateful for what it's teaching me. Mm. So, so the ability to release those things has become um, really quite fast for me now. And I, I'd use the simplest of things which pop up often. And I found those great teachers. So um, I don't know what it is about Noosa. I think it's because it's, it, it has people that are from all over the world. But Noosa is renowned for people driving around the town and being absolutely awful using their indicators properly and it's one of those simple things that just pops up continually to people all the time and it can be a huge source of irritation and frustration so what i do is i drive up to a roundabout and i go here we go this someone's going to do something random with their indicators and, and nine times out of ten they would and what i do is i'd allow that that feeling and that event to pass through me as if i was transparent um uh, and slowly but surely just let go of it. And although I was using, you know, poor, poor roadcraft and absence of indicators to, to um, act as the trigger, I, I did that because it was simple and it was, it's sort of something of nothing in a way. Mm -hmm. So it points quite, quite clearly to the fact that it's you, you know, it's your internal energy and your triggers that are the issue. Uh, that's where you need to look and that's where the work is. So I'd go through a whole succession of different things, you know, in, in what sounds like very small ways. But I found that particularly with all the meditation and my daily practices, that over a few years, in effect, I was rewiring my whole system. Mm -hmm. uh, the way my brain works, the way I live, the energy with which I go through life. So I've reached a point now where I can sit in a coffee shop and I can watch the rain come down through the leaves and the tree and feel a most profound sense of connection uh, mm. to all life and a, a oneness uh, with all that is. 
Um, and with that comes an incredible deep peace and a most profound joy. And and those holy instants, if you want to describe it that way, those those magical moments, as you go on that practice, you might have one of those or two of those in a year. Mm. And then perhaps they reach a point where they're weekly or daily. And for me, I, I, I typically get half a dozen a day. And my path is about joining those dots together and just being ever more um, in a state of grace and living with love. Mm. And it's the most beautiful journey. And, and I marvel at the way my whole world and my life transforms around me as my inner state and my energy changes. And I have complete strangers come up to me and say, wow, your, your energy is beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me your story. And, and they can feel it. You know, they can feel the love and the, they can feel the peace. Too. Um, and there's there's not very much of it around in our world, it seems, you know, with people being so busy and preoccupied and and fearful and judgmental about a great many things. Mm. But uh, I, I have a sense that the travesty is our inner energy, our inner state. It's not an external issue that someone's doing something wrong. Um, if you want to fix climate change, then start inside yourself and be a more loving, kind and peaceful being. And that effect, I think, is ultimately limitless. And I think you can change a world and indeed a universe if you begin there. And I think it's something we can all relate to because we know those times that we feel really good, like whether mm -hmm. it's after a massage or after kirtan or after a dance class or after a good conversation of connection. Mm. Yeah. And then anything can happen and it doesn't trigger you because mm. you're happy, like you're content, you're at peace, you have bliss inside of you. And yeah. so I think you've just articulated it so well. If we can cultivate that inside of us, it changes everything outside of us. Yes. For you, and I love that you said that initially those moments were further between each other. And then as you kept practicing, they got closer and closer together. When, when did the light kind of go on for you during that healing journey that you're like, this is what I have to keep doing? Like there was enough, mm -hmm. enough of a feeling like, wow, this is the way. Do, do you remember when that was? Because I, I think for many people, yeah. they can be meditating, they can be doing these things, but they can feel like they haven't arrived yet. So I want them to, to hear like how you kept holding on hope when you had all this pain, but mm -hmm. there was something that you were like, this is what I need to keep doing despite all that pain. Yeah, I, I think I'd answer that question two ways, if I may. What, one was an, a, a, an instantaneous moment and, and the other was uh, more of a journey. Uh, so I, I used to walk the beach um, when my body would allow, and I'd just do 10 minutes or so on the firm sand and uh, and just, you know, soak up the beauty of the nature around me and try and try and be in a sort of meditative state and just plugged into nature. Uh, she's a beautiful doorway. Mm. Um, and what I found is that the 30, 35 years or so that I spent working in the counterterrorism uh, space is that what I'd learned to do was I, I found a way of turning off the switch marked human being. So I could operate in an incredibly efficient, capable way. 
and I understood the emotions of the people around me and I could rationalise about compassion for what was happening, but I didn't really feel things. And that was a way of navigating a, a very challenging path and it worked for me. But as I reached that point where all the injuries had stopped me from from doing anything and I, I just, you know, I'd take time to sort of be with nature if ever I could. As I'd walk the beach, I would burst into floods of tears. And every day I would cry and cry as I walked the beach. And after some days, some weeks of that, I had a sense that that big trip switch marked human being had flicked itself back on and gone, actually, it's time for you to feel again. Mm-hmm. And as I as I walked the beach feeling incredibly emotional, it was like 30 years worth was just power hosing its way through me emotionally. So it was it was it was really a bit brutal on me, but but wonderful too. I can remember an instant where I had this flash of re- revelation. And it was a beautiful sunny day, but as I looked up at the sky, I could feel, see, sense my connection with every star. Not just the ones that I might be able to see in the night sky, albeit it was daylight, I couldn't see any. But I felt this incredible oneness that the entire cosmos is all connected. Mm-hmm. And the, the way that feeling came in to try and, and and words are words are always a bit limiting with such such descriptions mm-hmm. but but the way it came in in terms of flavor was love and it was if it was as if the quantum field or oneness or ground luminosity all these different ways that um uh, spiritual people will try and describe the connections and indeed physicists uh, for me, that quantum field, that connection between all things is love. Mm. Um, perhaps that sounds a simplistic way to describe it, but somehow somehow that fits for me, that, that works for me. Um, so that instant made me go, boom, it's all connected. Mm. And, and I could feel it in the deepest and most profound ways. Uh, and I was crying a bit before that happened, and afterwards I was crying a huge amount, but this this time with very much tears of joy. And from that point forwards, I deliberately chose to live with more love every moment of my life. So each day I would be more gentle. Mm. I would be kinder. I would live with love. And when people were clunky or a bit dysfunctional or, you know, some negative emotions towards me, I worked really diligently on gaining the wisdom to understand why they might feel and behave the way they do and replace any judgments or reactions that I might have with compassion Mm. so that I was present and conscious and kind and that I was operating with my heart, Mm. not with my mind. And and I think a mind is an incredible tool, and I, I managed all sorts of quite complicated projects. <laughs> and it's it's wonderful to have that processing power that our brains offer us. And I think it is just the most wonderful tool. But to expect your mind to run the show is where the problems begin, mm. because our heart 
carries a wisdom and a connection that's way beyond anything that our minds could ever offer. Mm -hmm. So if you want to understand your purpose in life, if you want to feel connection to the whole cosmos, if you want to fill your life with love, your brain can't offer you these things. It can do so many amazing things for you, but it can't give you the big answers. Mm -hmm. They're all in your hearts. Mm -hmm. And the journey was a shifting from my mind to my heart. And as my brain became ever less busy, and that's obviously a, a, a fundamental part of meditation, I found that I could um, come up with so many more answers and I could feel and understand things so much better the quieter I was what one of the most beautiful benefits of that and you talked at the beginning about trying to sort of be there and support and, and be good counsel for people in the community which is, is something I, I love doing dearly I, I found that I developed an ever better capacity to listen and it's one of the practices that I, I, I work on every day and Something I came across in my studies, it describes the greatest capacity to listen is to actually almost create a presence and a field with somebody where you listen so intently and allow an opening energetically for that being to be heard that your own mind is completely empty. You're not thinking about what to say next. You're not... Um, processing their words in any sort of judgment or um, trying to come up with a you know wise uh, wise response that might guide them better you simply listen and what I've noticed over time is that that is an incredibly healing energy and if you can truly create space and listen to someone in a place of uh, conscious presence rather than thought they've got all the healing and the answers inside them already mm -hmm. there's a wisdom deep in that person that knows the path that knows the fixes they just need to be truly heard and it's like a catalyst for healing so that's that's one of the beautiful outcomes of, of some of that journey so sorry sorry that's a very long answer to no this is question. so good this is so good Steve because I think Many of us know there's either fear or love. And we we know, like, as soon as you start saying, like, love is the answer to everything, it's how you heal. I think mm. most of us know that intuitively, and it feels that resonance. You can just feel it. But yes. then how do we do it? And you've given us so many nuggets, like practicing non-judgment mm. or feeling our feelings or just what you said, like listening and opening up where you, you're really receiving all of their energy and you're just this open vessel so the, there's no judgment there. Mm. So these are all such tangible things like how do we return to love rather than just knowing that's a good idea? <laughs> but yeah. how do we actually do it? Yes. So, so perfect. So mm. where are you now in terms of the, the pain levels and from you know this journey over the past eight years? And what do you do if any of the pain returns? Like, what's your go-to? Yeah, look, I, you know, I, I do still get um, issues with sort of arthritic pain. 
my, my hands will get stiff and stuff like that. So there's a lot of sort of overuse, wear and tear type things in my body. Um, and the spine will trouble me if I pick up something too heavy or if I, if I do sit too much. That's what still, even to this day, that's one of the things that does, does trigger it. Um, but what I found is that if I do enough good things, mm. um, so hydrotherapy I still do once a week. And because it's warm, buoyant water, the, you know, the weight is unloaded from the body and the jets in the sort of spa type stuff provide a gentle massage, almost in a sort of weightless state. Um, I find that's amazing. And that does that does reduce the any flare up of the injuries. So the reason I mention some of these things and yin yoga, I find re- really tremendous, the deep, long stretches and just dropping deep into that moment. So, so there's a there's a number of things that I do. But but if anybody's listening, I, I'd suggest perhaps don't don't worry too much specifically about what the the wellness activity is. Take a step back and come from a place of self-love. And if you could sit down with a blank sheet of paper and say to your say to yourself, what would be the best expression of self-love in my day? So for some people, it would be sitting down with a great book and a, a nice cup of coffee. Some would walk walk in nature. Um, others would enjoy yoga. Uh, there's a huge variety out there, and and we're unique creatures. Every single human being is a is a one off. So that that wish list of self love, I think, is a very personal thing, and the act of taking the time and the care to write your own self love care list is 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 also an expression of self love. And something that the this seven, eight year journey of healing made very, very clear to me is that we need to begin inside ourselves mm. and we must start by loving ourselves. Now, society sometimes might suggest or view that as selfish in some way, whereas the truth is it's the complete opposite. And by truly loving yourself, uh, and I don't mean being self-centered or selfish. I mean by actually really investing in you with love. Mm-hmm. What will happen is that you'll be a far better version of you. Your frequency will will be raised, and your capacity to live well, to live kindly, um, to live a life of service will be expanded. And as a consequence, the society and the people around you benefit enormously when you reach a stage where you have an excess of love Mm. because you've serviced your own need for love. You've opened your connection to divine love, if you will, the, the sort of cosmic energies because you're being gentle and you're being kind. So those those energetic pathways are opening. And you can then, in effect, become a portal for more and more love to pour in to this world and to those people that you connect with. So rather than it be selfish at first sight, it's an incredible journey of service. Mm. And that's the beginning of an opportunity for real alchemy. Mm. Alchemy is nothing about taking some rocks and turning them into gold. It's all about taking fear and changing it into love. That's alchemy. And you can change a world with that. The ripples go on forever. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so important, that connection 
love for others, but love for ourselves. You know, it's so overlooked. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I think um, I, I, sometimes when I, I sit down with people, uh, I've had a few people, quite a surprising number actually, say to me, I, I don't know what love is. I don't know how to love myself. And and that's why I sit down and say, well, actually, just get a piece of paper and think of some really nice things to do for you. Mm-hmm. And when you do that um, as part of your daily practice, realise you're doing it because you do love you and actually you care about you and mm-hmm. uh, you matter. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and those small little steps just grow um, yeah. and it develops into something really beautiful. And it can go to that next level of the not judging of others, but not judging of ourselves. Because I see this so much in my my students, whether it's in my dance classes or in my courses, whether it's business or health. But it's not just not having compassion for others. It's not having compassion for themselves. I'm not good enough at this. I'm, it's taking me too long to learn this. Why can't I stop doing this? And it's it's uncompassionate talk for ourselves. Mm. Yes. Ourselves is so important bless you i'm really pleased you mentioned judgment again actually because um something i realized as i was working on that practice of not judging others um i, I wasn't really looking in the other direction i wasn't thinking or uh, deep diving into aspects of self-judgment and i i managed to do a, a trip back to uh, uk to see some friends uh, which was a really arduous journey for me to to, to undertake because obviously it's very difficult for me to sit. Um, but because of all my work travel, I managed to use uh, frequent flyer points to do a business trip so I could lay down. Lay down. <laughs> which was lovely, but 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 for me, I, I wouldn't have been able to walk if I if I'd been sat yeah. that length of time. So I'd I'd have been been in a huge amount of pain. But um, but I got back to to the UK and I caught up with friends every couple of days. Um, who I'd known much of my life, but hadn't seen some of them for 10 or 15 years. All really super friends, huge variety of people, um, beautiful connections with them of different flavours in different ways. And over the course of about 10 days, I had a moment of rather wonderful reflection. And I, I said to myself, wow, these people love me so much. And because I'd live the other side of the world they were incredibly open about their big deep challenging life stuff they were incredibly open about their um their feelings towards me and after the 10 days i was left saying to myself why don't i love me Mm. the way they love me surely that's okay and and this this was a deeply profound moment on, on my path. In that instant, I felt an incredible sense of forgiveness. Mm. And the judgments of myself just vaporized. And I was left in a state of complete forgiveness. And that was the backdrop to be, to be able to love myself unconditionally. And I think forgiveness compassion and love almost describe a thread that we can go on through life whereas we relinquish the judgments and we embrace forgiveness we then have a clear run at that ability to love ourselves 
unconditionally. And if you can do that, you can unconditionally love all that is. Yeah. A blade of grass, your partner, um, spirits, unlimited. You, you, your unconditional love becomes boundless. Yeah, just beautiful. And it's all layers, eh? Mm. Like we take off one layer and then we go to the the stuff that really runs the show. And often that is self-love. Mm. Yeah, um, very much. Mm. So can we also talk about um, the moving from doing to being? And this is something I'm so passionate about. It's, it's I can't remember who mm. first coined the phrase be, do, have, but it all starts with the being. And that's something I teach through all of my courses and I know that's a big belief for you, shifting from the doing into the being. Can yes. you share what you believe about that? Yes, I, I think this is a rather magical topic, actually. Um, I, I read a book, marvellous read, by a, a Francis, Franciscan friar, actually. Um, uh, and he talked about the two halves of life. And I can remember when I was reading the, the book originally, I, I was a bit challenged by the idea, actually. It didn't quite land right for me. But he described the first half of life as doing and the second half of life as being. And he said, look, it's not a numeric thing. It's not necessarily in the middle of your life. The, the time that it happens is different for everybody. But his perspective on it was that the doing phase of life when we're working hard and we're acquiring and we're achieving and we're driven by our goals, um, very, very busy with the doing, that in effect that was like the forging of a container. Hmm. And at the right time, there was then the opportunity to change your focus on to being. And that's where you pour in the spiritual good stuff, uh, the love into the container uh, and over time I sort of reflected on his words and I, I, I've come to feel that there's great wisdom in there uh, as much as it didn't, didn't sort of land instantly and for me personally the, the way I've ended up viewing it is that when you watch people doing it's like they're traveling in a horizontal line so they're going from A to B to C and they're navigating their path through life as they do and achieve and acquire and I think that's very much part of the human journey. And I chat to a lot of younger people who are completely immersed in the doing phase. Uh, and I've got lots of interest and energy for, for what they're doing. And I think that's, that's tremendous of itself. But at some point on our path, most, if not all of us, have a sense that there's something more. It could be a, a feeling of lack um, that we keep achieving and acquiring, but there's always a hole inside us that we're missing something really deep and important on our journey. And for me, the being is like the vertical journey. So if you imagine one instant in your life, one second where you are doing something, and just pause for a moment on what the activity itself is and just refocus onto the quality with which that action is occurring. And if there's great depth and presence and consciousness about the quality and the worth of that individual moment, that's being. 
Mm. That's living in the most visceral, alive, vibrant way. And if you can switch the focus to the quality of being, it doesn't mean that you stop doing things. Mm. It just means that you've changed the order. And your internal ultimate priority is the quality of your being. Thereafter, anything that you do is simply in service to that spiritual practice. Mm. So it's sort of like window dressing, really. Mm. The activity itself is not who you are. Who you are is something eternal. Deep, deep down at the core of your being, I'd suggest it's made of love. And that depth and vitality and um, wonder that exists within that presence there's the magic mm. and if you can be like that whatever you do all of a sudden has a whole new incredible energy about it and your mm. capacity to do things that might seem impossible comes online mm. um, and your ability to manifest to achieve things that are in alignment with your soul's journey not your individual human journey, but all your lives, um, all starts to coalesce. So I, I think there's true wonder in that shift from doing to being. And I don't think you can rush it. I think it comes in at the right time for each and every one of us when we're ready. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think you can force it in any way. I think it, um, it's almost like a, the blossoming of a flower. Yeah, and I think it's the the journey you go on, like there's ways that you can access it. One of the reasons I love teaching dance is I feel like people's real essence comes out when they dance, like that that mm -hmm. joyful energy that is really them and a little bit more vulnerable and open. And when you can take that energy into your daily life, it's just effervescent. And I think there's other things you can do in terms of, okay, if I want to have this thing, what would the person that would already have these things, what would they do? Like what, what energy would they bring to the doing? So I think there's things that we can do, but I agree that it's almost like, again, going under, under everything else. If you start this journey of meditating and, and love and non-judgment and compassion for yourself, things just start opening up. They start blossoming. And it's, it's like, what can, what's the one thing I can do that will open up everything else? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you were going to say something, I think. I saw the ooh come into your eyes. Yeah, it's, um, I, I, mean, I, I couldn't agree more with, with, your, with your words. I think there's great wisdom in there. Uh, for me, it almost holds a resonance. So when you picture a future state that you wish to um, achieve or, or become, then when you really feel that, what you're doing is you're changing your vibrational frequency to the new state. And it might be, you know, sort of, temporary um, uh, glances and insights of that, but you're shifting your energy to where you want it to go. Um, the reason I use the word resonance is that um, when you change your vibration higher to some something that uh, you strive towards, that has a resonance with the energetics around you. So the events that come into your life, the people that you meet, the support and the assistance that seems to come out of thin air, 
that's an energetic resonance. Um, you can call it serendipity, um, uh, alignment, um, luck, if you like. You can call it what you like. Um, but but I think that's very much part of the quantum field. It's how everything's connected. And if you raise your vibration to one of love and one of service and one of joy, then you're going to bring in more of those energies because it's it's a like energy. The flip side's true. If you operate from a place of anger and fear, you will manifest those things too. So if you go low vibration, you're pulling in um, the the things that you're asking for energetically uh and that's that's a confronting thing to say for someone that's in the midst of suffering and uh, i have great empathy for that i've I've walked that path i really understand but ultimately we are creators um i think we co-create with the cosmos uh with um the divine if you will uh but uh it's very much in her hands and that applies to our peace our joy and our health it's in your hands mm. and that acceptance is an incredibly powerful thing because you then become a change for good a force for good because mm. it's up to you yeah that personal responsibility is so key mm. yeah mm. So a few quick fire questions for you. What would what would your definition of success be from where you are now and just everything you've experienced? What is your definition of success and a well-lived life? Yes. Um, gosh, that's quite, quite, quite a big question. <laughs> we could be do a whole podcast just on this. Yes, <laughs> easily. Um, I, I, I would I would choose two words actually to, to unpack that slightly and, and and words words can be quite tricky things because ultimately they're only ever signposts so you know you, you talk about a flower and as soon as you've called it a flower you've limited the beauty and the wonder of what that actually mm. is by using a word so I'm, I'm, I'm always a little cautious about words so don't don't sort of overthink what i'm going to say now it really is about a signpost to, towards a, an, an idea but people often seek happiness in life that's something i've completely released what i strive towards is joy mm. and they are only words, you know, they're signposts. But, but the ideas that I'm pointing towards is that happiness requires something external. So I want a shinier car. I want a beautiful partner. I want the money to go on holiday whenever I like. These are all external things that we're dependent on for our perceived happiness. And when you get what you want, you start wanting something else or something more. And it's like the hungry hippo, it's, it's, mm, mm. it's always striving for more. So happiness is a, is a little bit of a trap in that sense because it's dependent on external factors and events. Whereas joy is something that comes from an inner state. So for me, as I went on a path to live ever more gently, to have a peaceful inner state and to live with love, one of the huge shifts within my own internal state, my own energetics, 
was an underlying sense of joy mm. that I could feel my connection to all life, that I could look out the window at nature and feel wonder, mm. that just by sensing the life within me, I could feel joy. Mm. And that that's not dependent on external things. It's about the energetics within you. It's it's almost a sense of grace, of wonder. Mm. So my path, success, if I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I really don't tend to use the word success anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm retired. I'm, I'm, I'm allowed not to use that word anymore. Um, but, um, but, but yeah, for me, the thing that I, um, I journey towards, that I invest in, is joy and peace. You know, I think those two are are things that we can have irrespective of what happens externally. So they truly can in, endure. And I, I've ended up with a sense, uh, I've, got, I've got a dear friend actually who runs a palliative care hospice um, here, here in Noosa. Um, and we have very, very long coffees and all sorts of spiritual discussions. And um, uh, John, his name is. Uh, and John, John said to me one morning, he said, Steve, I've been I've been reading some books and I, I've come across this wonderful idea. And he said to me, um, the question is, what would love do? And he said, when you think something or when you go to do something or when you're struggling with something, he said, I've decided to check back in and go, mm. what would love do? Mm. And we, I, I actually wrote a meditation about it. Um, uh, it really touched me deeply. I think it's a beautiful reflection and um transformational idea actually because it takes you from the mind to the heart that's that's the magic of it mm. uh but uh yeah so i, I mentioned that because that's kind of how i endeavor to live and part of my um sense and logic that goes with that is that my own belief so that when we die i think perhaps the only thing we take with us is love so that encourages me to live with ever more love um, because it's one of the most high vibration things that we uh, we can ever touch. Uh, the Buddhists uh, have a belief that when we pass over, our sensitivity is increased sevenfold. So if you are an angry person or if you're spiteful or, um, you know, really negative about life, that might be amplified seven times if you live with peace and joy and operate from a graceful place, then that too could be amplified by seven times. And for me personally, I've, I've never sort of connected into a particular religion. I study them all. I look for the gold, gold dust that I can find in any religion or ancient philosophy. And I, I find it's an amazing time to live, actually, that we've got the internet and uh, all mm. these you know, abilities to plug into so much wisdom. I, I think it's tremendous. Um, so for me, I, I don't, I don't sort of have any inclination to choose a particular religion. Um, but, uh, but I think that Buddhist view is is rather interesting. And for me, I don't know. Maybe it's times three rather than times seven. It depends <laughs> on the depends on the individual, I guess. But I, I was left as I sort of reflected on that. I was left with a sense that actually, Judgment Day. Maybe what that's about is when we pass over and we get that amplified sensitivity 
and we do a life review of our time going around the sun for this particular chapter. And the, the judgment day, for better or for worse, is actually a very sensitised look at ourselves. And that, for me, um, yeah, that, that landed rather nicely, actually. And I found it encouraging and motivating to do your best, you know, and, yeah. and to live gently and to live with love. Yeah, just so beautiful. I, I love questions like that because they pull you so quickly into your heart and mm. you know the answer. You know, it's just it's a, such a quick shift. So one more question, but it's twofold. Okay. What book do you wish was given to high schoolers or elementary school that you think would be so changing and so important? And what book are you currently reading right now? Yeah, um, uh, I, I have to smile because when, when I was working, um, uh, I, I was a complete workaholic. So if I was awake, I was working. And I used to have to study and review a huge amount of written material. And at the time, I was quite proud of the fact that I didn't read books as um, as a sort of pastime, which uh, I, I think was um, uh, probably foolish beyond words, to be honest. But uh, but now I've typically got three or four mm. books on the go at a time, depending on the, the sort of um, uh, energy and feelings that I, that I have in the moment when I go to pick a book up. Um, yeah, if I recommended one for um, sort of people uh, in the later years of school, it would be uh, Eckhart Tolle, A New Earth. Mm. Uh, I confess I read it seven times and then I started on the audio book mm. because I found it was very in reach. Um, uh, I think the concepts and the offerings in there can touch anyone. And it's got such wisdom and such insights in in ways that can help you live a better life mm. instantly. Uh, I think it's a tremendous read. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying, not just saying that because Oprah, Oprah thought the same, but uh, um, yeah, it's, it really is a, tr a tremendous book. Um, and the book I'm reading at the moment, um, I'm, I'm actually reading. Well, one of them at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm reading probably, but uh, I'll, I'll mention both of them actually. They were both recommended by a dear friend actually. And they're both, um, uh, they're a little bit out there. So, um, Something I've, I've ended up doing in recent years is um, the whole idea of non-judgment is that I don't vehement, vehemently believe or disbelieve things. I'm just an open channel. And it doesn't mean that I don't look at things in a critical way or sort of, you know, ponder and reflect on, on specifics within concepts. But um, I don't say no to something. Um, uh, unless by chance I know everything there is to know about that particular field. So I'll give you an example. If people say to me, do aliens exist? And I say, well, actually, I, I've not travelled the entire cosmos. <laughs> so, so how could I say, no, they don't? Uh, so, and, and I'm not saying, you know, I completely believe that they are aliens or disbelieve. I'm just open uh, because... Actually, unless you're um, uh, some sort of all-seeing, omniscient being, then you probably haven't got the whole truth. So, so that's, that's helped me actually let go mm. of a lot of things. So uh, the couple of books I'm reading at the moment, and then you'll now understand why I've, why I've pre precursed. So uh, one book I'm, I'm reading is The Lifetimes When Jesus and Buddha uh, Knew Each Other, which actually I've got sat, sat right so um, that's about uh, a sort of medium who channels two ascended masters who reflect on 
um, uh, six of the key lifetimes that Jesus and Buddha had um, connections uh, during a lifetime. And it's um, it's interesting because sometimes they're partners, sometimes one's the teacher, sometimes they switch, the other one's the student. Um, and the reason I love the book is it's just got some really magical spiritual insights so i don't have a need to say yes they shared their lives no they didn't i just look for the gold mm. and I, I think that's a very open easy way to be uh, the other book which um i'm really enjoying although i've had to pause because my partner's pinched it off me and stuff <laughs> so I've, I've, I've had to i've had to press pause um is anna uh, which is about jesus grandmother uh, and again, it's, it's channeled information from her, from spirits uh, that's been captured in this most amazing book. And if anyone's um, sort of interested in spiritual or the divine, uh, it is an incredible read, uh, although I haven't finished it because I've, I've been interrupted. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, and my partner felt the same, you know, that uh, that it really is. Um, an amazing read if you're uh, that way inclined you know if you're interested in uh, spirituality and, and the divine oh wonderful and i'll put this all in the show notes so everyone can easily access if any of those books intrigued you steve this has just been so wonderful i have a whole list of questions so we'll have to bring you back on the show a little bit later but for now i did want to let people know if you're ever in noosa Steve does the most amazing Qigong session Sundays mornings. So if you're ever here, I'll put the show notes again where you can reach him. And if people want to work one-on-one -on -one with you, where would they find you? Where's the best place to go? Yeah, look, um, they can contact me through um, Instagram or Facebook. I think most people tend to sort of use one or the other. Um, uh, so that, that would be probably the easiest way to, to contact me. So by all means, put, put, put my, my links on there. Um, and, and typically, if people want to reach out, I'd, I'd catch up for a chai or a coffee uh, and always happy to listen. And uh, I think there's a, a wonder in being able to connect with others, share our energies and our wisdoms. And that if you can do that in a really heart-based, open way, we all grow so much faster by um, connecting. So I, I, th I think that's a really magical thing. Um, and being able to help each other heal. And uh, I, I love the um, Ram Dass expression that we're all just walking each other home, uh, one another home. And it, and it is very much a return to love. Um, and that's, for me, that's the journey. Thank you so much, Steve, for just giving us so much knowledge and wisdom and little nuggets and just sharing your journey. It's just been absolutely wonderful having this conversation. Bless you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd absolutely love if you left a review on iTunes. It really helps me to get the podcast out there to support more people just like you to create soulful lives. And as a thank you, I'd love to send you my 20 personal affirmations for manifesting an aligned, magical, and fulfilling life. To access this freebie, simply send a screenshot of your review to soulcraft at carmenmarshall.com, and I'll send you my favorite affirmations and mantras straight to your inbox. All my love, and I'll see you on the next episode.